Hello everybody, Andy here and welcome to this week's podcast and today we have a very special guest. Now we normally haven't been doing any intros but we felt that this guy actually deserved one. Now today's podcast guest is an amazing golf coach. He keeps himself pretty much uh, low key but he's achieved some incredible things in his career. Certainly someone we've looked up to, never had the pleasure of actually meeting and chatting to before so we're really excited to actually finally get to meet this guy and interview him about his golf, his experiences, what it's like on tour, talk about players and so much. Now, Pete Cowan has had an incredible career. He played on tour for 10 years. Um, He's coached some of the best players in the world. He's had 250 PGA Tour victories as a coach with eight majors. His recent ones being Brooks Kepka. He coaches him on the short game. And Gary Woodland, obviously US Open champ last year, coaches him on the short game too. So he's got some fantastic experience. De- definitely a reputation of sort of just speaking the truth, saying how it is. And today's podcast, he ju- he does just that. We go into really talking about what it's like on tour, week in, week out, dealing with the players. What separates the best players from the rest? We talk about the swing, his concept behind what he likes to see in the golf swing and what's important to him. And just coaching, you know, what does it take to be a great coach? Do you need to be a certain type of coach to deal with these players on tour? And talk about some experiences he's had with Seve, with Sam Sneed, playing with Sam Sneed um, as well. So this one's a really interesting podcast. A little bit of what behind the scenes is like on tour from a really top golf coach. So I think you're going to enjoy this. So without further ado, please welcome to the podcast, Pete Cowan. Pete Cowan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, for giving up your time. How are you? Um, fine, thanks. And um, oh, no problems at all, apart from the, the British weather. Like to go to America and get the sun on my back. And you're off there soon. I hear to go to obviously Masters soon. Yeah, it's uh, Houston first week, and uh, then the Masters. So it'll be odd without the crowds at Augusta. Yeah, it must be exciting. I mean, obviously, obviously, you you go every year to that, and you have done for probably some time now. Is it still exciting every time you go back to the Masters? It's a difficult place to work. Very difficult. Great place for you know play, people to go to, uh, uh, but it's a very difficult place for coaches to work at. A little bit restrictive, but it, for for the average person to go to the Masters is definitely a once in a lifetime thing that they they should do really. Yeah, we were lucky enough to go a couple of years ago when Patrick Reed won, and it was definitely, uh, definitely an yeah. experience. So, Pete, it'd be great. I mean, we, we, when we were planning out this podcast, we, we wrote like loads of questions. There was lots of different ones that we wanted to ask you. So we sort of narrowed it down into three sections. I'd love to talk about your career as a coach and life on tour. Um, you've had amazing success as a golf coach with the world's best players, you know, Henrik Stenson, Lee Westwood, Darren Clark, and I suppose Brooks Kepka is a recent guy and... Gary yeah, Woodland. Woodland recently. Yeah. Woodland, yeah. How did it all start for you and, and, and how did you get up to, to where you are today? If you could give the listeners a sort of bit of a summary on that. Well, I, I've been a professional since 1967, so 53 years. I played a little bit uh, during the 70s, won a tournament in Africa, uh, played the tour for on and off for 10, over 10 years journeyman pro if you like um good three good rounds one poor round classic you know poor mental um problems and i suddenly realized that i hadn't got the mental capacity for it i i I was too much of a perfectionist and there was no money about then in any case in the 70s so 
you were just playing and then in winter you took a job and then you played for your summer golf. I mean, Peter Oosterhuis, who was probably one of the top players in the 70s, I think he won five order merits. And I don't think his total money would amass to £100,000 now. So there, there wasn't the money around. So you, and, and travel was still expensive then. To, to, to fly was still expensive. So it was very difficult to make money. And then I became a club pro in 79. And, but I was always interested in technique. Uh, I played the year before that, I'd played the Australian tour and done pretty well on the Australian tour. And one of the caddies there said, you know, you really need to go and see Gardner Dickinson, who was, you know, one of the top coaches in America at the time uh, for your own game and to understand how to get better. So I said, well, if you can arrange it, he was American caddy and he arranged me for me to go and see Gardner Dickinson in 1978, the end of 78. Uh, and I went and uh, I wrote everything down that he said. And it was very expensive then, put it that way. Everybody thinks ex uh, coaching is expensive now. It was 200 US dollars for 42 years ago. Wow. 42 years ago, $200 an hour. So it, it, <laughs> that's, that's an, that was an awful lot of money then. <laughs> and I paid $2,000 uh, over a 10-day period for the lesson. They had a lesson a day of 10 days. And I asked Gardner Dickinson if he could, because he was one of Hogan's right-hand men, asked him if he could arrange for me to go and watch uh, Hogan practice. And he said, look, I can ring him up today and he'll say, yeah, come down to Fort Worth tomorrow. You'll fly down there and then you'll hang about and he might say, yeah, you can come and watch me or no, you can't. He said... I, I still don't know what sort of you know mood he's going to be in on a daily basis. He said, so if I was you, I'd stay here and watch Jack Grout teach Jack Nicholas for two weeks because they're coming down and it was a place called Frenchman's Creek in West Palm Beach. So I still wish I'd have gone to watch, uh, see whether Ben Hogan would have told me to get lost. That would have been, <laughs> that would have been better, a better story. But uh I, I watched Nicholas and Grout work and I put down what uh, everything that Gardner had told me and it was it was basic stuff. I still got the I've still got the diary now with it all in and when I look back it's really pretty pretty basic stuff. Um as I was looking back, I always thought, well, I I could probably do a little bit better than that with the technique. So that's when I started as a club pro and I started coaching and I always had my quick fix it coaching which I think everybody that in the game understands that they need that that's probably 90% of the business but I always had a development program behind it where I could develop kids and you know and make them understand how they're going to get better practice better and where I've fallen down in you know my quest to become you know the best player and mine was all about attitude uh, I had a very poor attitude because I was a perfectionist and you know, never felt as though I should hit a bad shot. If I'd practiced for eight hours a day and hit a thousand balls, I didn't think that I should be able to hit a bad shot. So I used to get pretty angry with myself. Um, a bit like Stenson now. Stenson's a perfectionist. And that in itself, although he's achieved everything in the game, he could have done an awful lot better if he'd have just been able to control the temper a little bit better. Mm. So I carried on from there. My development program and I developed some really really good youngsters who won firstly everything in amateur golf uh, ladies and men and they were very young lads and then everybody thought well something must be happening there we'll go and see what it is and then Westwood and Clark came along in 90, 
4.95. And uh, I I developed them, the two of them. They'd, they'd not won a tournament then. I think Darren had won one tournament, the Belgian Open, but Lee hadn't won. And he was really struggling. He was short and wild at the time. So we sorted that one out. And then in the next five years, he won 25 tournaments and got to number four in the world. And Darren won about 12 or 13 tournaments. So between them, they'd won nearly 40 tournaments in that five-year span. Uh, so I decided that, you know, maybe I should actually go and uh, do this as a proper job rather than have two jobs like a club pro. And, and uh, so I went on tour about 97, 98, and, um, and it's carried on from there, really. So I've taught an awful lot of top players, uh, a lot of success. They've, they've won over 250 tournaments on the, on the main tours, not on the smaller tours, and they won 10 majors. So it's been fairly successful, but the majors have all come in the last 10 years, from 2010, when Louis won the Open, Louis Ossarsen, and then Graham McDowell won the US Open. So from then, it's just snowballed a little bit. And then, of course, Brooks has won four out of the last six six majors. And uh, obviously, Gary won last year at the uh, US Open, which was impressive, really. Um, so it's just carrying on, really. And people say, well, when are you going to retire? I said, well, I wouldn't know what to do if I retired, <laughs> so I might as well carry on. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And what and what's life actually, you know, for the I mean listeners of this, <coughs> what's life actually like on tour? You know, weekly week in, week out, you know, month month to month. What's it like out there? Well, you? if you like traveling in the hotels, you you're fine. <laughs> but if you don't like traveling in hotels, you might struggle a little bit. But we don't see an awful lot of the world really. We go, you know, Monday is the traveling day, the rest of the week is on the range, uh, walking around the course and then obviously it all carries on from there. Uh, but I stopped, eventually I stopped going uh, on the tournament days. I only went Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and probably stayed Thursday to watch the first round and then left them alone after that because I found out that was probably the better way of doing it. It sometimes got in the way a little bit and they wanted too much information and they, they, they couldn't stand on their own two feet sometimes if I was there. I was too much of a crutch. Uh, and they relied too much on you. So I, I felt the better way of doing it was just to get them prepared and then leave them, a bit like a racehorse trainer. Yeah. You can't run the race for the horse, but get it prepared and let it run. It gives them the ownership then. You going, it's yeah, they've got, to, they've, they've got to take their ownership. They really have. They've, and I always said to the players, you know, you've got to, uh, the three R's. I always teach the young kids and all, all, the, and all the players the three R's. The first one is they've got to respect themselves, which I didn't enough because I disrespected myself by snapping clubs and getting really annoyed with myself, which disrespected the people that had helped me to achieve that and get where I wanted to. So you, 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 you didn't respect yourself. You didn't respect the people who helped you. And the third R was be responsible for your own actions. Take responsibility. And that's what players have got to do, but not just in golf, but that's in every walk of life. If people live their life by those three rules, they'd, they'd be fine. Whatever, whatever they did. Yeah, you can see that. You can see that with some of the players that you've worked with. That's worked really well. But, but so, so when you, I kind of, you kind of alluded to it a little bit with the, the fact of being in hotels, but what, what's the hardest part about coaching on tour and what's the best part? So the two contrasts. 
Well, the, the hardest part for me was when I had 17 players at the Scottish Open one year at, uh, <laughs> at Hot Lowman and out of the temporary clubhouse. I walked out of the temporary clubhouse towards the range and all 17 players were lined up. So I just turned around and went home and came back in the evening. I thought, I can't win that one. So that was the hardest part then. Uh, I suddenly realised I needed some help. And since then, Mike Walker's been helping me. And uh, it's it's been pretty successful with Mike, me and Mike working together. Obviously, Mike does an awful lot of work with Fitzy these days and Kiradek. And he's helping quite a few other players, French the French players, um, Langasque and Lorenzo Vera. So... He's doing pretty well on, you know, in his own right as well, Mike. But uh, he, he actually said, you need a bit of help if 17 players are there and you can't. Oh. Um, and, and, of course, it's difficult because everyone's different. And when you're looking at golf swings, if you look at the players that I coach, I like to work with what they've got. Uh, not trying to put methodology into a, a player and just say, well, you know, it's matching movements. This has got to match that. That's got to match that. And this is how you're good. There's a common denominator between all, all top players. Mm. And they, it's not that they look the same. They don't look the same. They're all basically different. Uh, but there is a common denominator amongst them all. And everybody says, oh, the impact is the moment of truth. And I said, no, no, it's before that. That's just a consequence of what you've done before. So really, the delivery position, if you have a look at the delivery position of all great players relative to the shot they're trying to play. Mm-hmm. It's always relative to the shot they're trying to play. They're always in the same position yeah. in the delivery. Always. You can look at whatever swing you want, but you've got to understand, you've got to know what shot they were trying to play okay. to see you know, whether they were in the correct position relative to impact all the time. Because you lads all know, you know, if you're miles from the inside, how are you going to fade? Well, you can, you can, you can hit a block fade if you want, but <laughs> you better aim 50 yards left and so on and so forth. But if you look at all, all the top players, and I haven't found one yet that is different, the delivery position matches their intention of the shot. Yeah, absolutely. And they're just very, but they all get, the, they all get there differently. They all get yeah. there differently. Yeah, yeah. And trying to copy another one is going to be a bad idea, isn't it, for sure? Yeah. yeah. Well, do, do you think that, I mean, do you have to be a certain type of character to be able to work with tour players? Because obviously they've got big egos, you know, and they want to win and they're very competitive. And, you know, like Henrik is obviously a perfectionist. Do you need to be a certain type of character to be able to deal with these guys? Yeah, you've got to have a bigger ego like mine. No one's joking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've got to have thick skin, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, And I've got thick skin. Don't worry about it. I've had my ups and downs with players. We've had... uh, Plenty of ups and plenty of downs with players, and they've sacked me, and then they've re-employed me, and so you've got to be fairly thick-skinned. But you, there's one thing you can't do if you want to coach on tour and take it. You've got can't take it personal. Yeah, these guys want to get be, be the best, so they'll push you to the limit. They'll test you, and they will sometimes test you to see whether you know your stuff. Yeah, and, yeah, and sure. that's happened a few times. Thomas Bjorn was the best at that testing yeah. you to see whether you knew the stuff. Thomas was brilliant at that. Have you got an example of that? Have you got an example of that? Well, with 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 Thomas, he, he particularly he, he would hit poor shots on purpose. He would definitely hit poor shots on purpose, and then he's turning round and asking you what's wrong with this and what's wrong with that. 
and he's, he's testing you to see whether you're going to do, go down the wrong avenue and try and fix what he's actually, you know, putting on, putting on that isn't really him. So you'd have to eventually say, Thomas, I know you're only messing about there. Please, <laughs> just get on with it. That's so, great to trust then going forward, obviously, in your case. Yeah, yeah. So you'd, you'd have to know the character to know that they're actually testing you. That's, that's, mm. that's an art in itself. And Darren was Darren was as bad as Thomas. The two together, if you if you if any coach worked with Thomas and Darren together, they definitely want they've been a nut house now. There's no doubt about <laughs> they test them to the limit. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting you say about thick skinned. We we spoke to Ledbetter about it, and he says he's like a rhino, thick skinned and charges a lot. <laughs> oh, he charges a lot. I don't I don't think I charge a lot. I only I only work on uh, results, so you know I don't I don't get the Ledbetter money. That's for sure. Yeah, oh, that's cool. But yeah, what's, okay. what's the uh, what's the biggest lessons that you've learned about dealing with these tour players? Then, Pete, what's uh, what's the standard? Be very honest with them. Be very honest and try and make sure they've got the best attitude they can have. Because without, with everybody says, what makes the difference between, you know, the great players and the ones that, you know, almost should be able to make it, but don't. And it really is about the attitude, work ethics, attitude. But attitude comes the top of the list all the time. Without a great attitude, you could ruin the best swing in the world, you know, but, and, uh, you know, I've, I've seen that happen with quite a few young players that look like being world beaters and just the wrong attitude and just gave up. So it's very sad that that, that does happen. That's life, unfortunately. So without that, attitude, and it's stage fright as well. So many kids you can do it until the big stage opens up and then they just can't do it. But everybody gets nervous. It's how they deal with that nervousness that really determines you know the whether they are going to become better players or not and Matt Fitzpatrick was a classic example Matt's five foot eight doesn't hit it very far but every time you put Matt at a different level he's able to manage that level whether it was you know Yorkshire amateur English amateur US amateur then he went to Augusta and played Augusta as an amateur then he went to US Open played US Open as an amateur and then the next stage and each one you could see him blossom when he actually got there. It didn't didn't frighten him, and that's why when he gets in contention, he usually puts a good performance in all the time. Does young Matt? It's interesting because you can you know you can see that in his performance when you're watching Matt. And I think another guy that I mean we spoke to him about this as well. Danny Willett is another one who who really stands out when he's in the situation that he just he just thrives on it and performs better. For the, for the average listener to this, how, how do you think they can, if they're going, yeah, I definitely feel like I'm struggling with some stage fright, what can they do, do you think, that they can improve to work on that? Uh, that's a difficult one because that's what separates. That's what separates them. And it's always difficult uh, because, as I said, you're going to get nervous. It's how you deal with that nervousness. Uh, and then that's why they sometimes start employing psychologists to help them with that sort of thing. And then the group gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it, it almost devalues. They've got to look at themselves from within and said, you know, can I manage this? Be honest with themselves and, you know, realise that they are getting frightened and then start asking the questions, right, when I get in this situation, what do you think I need to do? What? And, I, and I say, well, the game of golf is one of those games where a lot of it, you don't understand the luck involved in the game. 
And then they start asking the question, what do you mean? I said, well, you'll know yourself when you looks in and when you looks out. Within three holes of starting a tournament or whatever, you'll know if you looks in or you looks out. And I said, look, you could go along and you've hit some great shots, first three holes, and you've one over par, and you know you should be two under. Well, you looks out. So start just playing sensible golf until it changes. It might not change, but you've got to start playing sales. Don't go for the ridiculous shots. But then when you actually play and you suddenly realise that, God, I'm three under par now. I've had a better look. It's bounced off that tree and gone here. It's done this. It's gone that. I've all the 30 foot trees. But those are the days that you start pushing your luck. And those are the days that you shoot really, really low. So you've got to be able to, it's managing yourself in situations. And that in turn helps you with your stage fright because you say, well, I'm not going to get frightened because I know, you know, the luck's not in today. So I've just got to cope with it and get the best score possible out of this today. And then hopefully the luck changes. And there is an awful lot of luck in this. Every sport is luck in it. Being, you know, at the right time, being in form at the right time. Everybody says, I'm trying to peak for the majors. I'm doing, that's very, very, very difficult. Very difficult. Certainly this year with, you know, what what situation we've had this year. So it is difficult. But I I walked around uh, with Morikawa at the USPJ, played with Henrik first two rounds. And he didn't play that well first two rounds. He was only two under par and he hit a few really, really loose shots. And I said to Henrik, I said, well, if you'd have hit those loose shots that he'd have hit, you'd have probably snapped every club in your bag. (laughs) And then he goes on and has an unbelievable weekend and wins. So you don't need to play four perfect rounds to win, you know, a big tournament. You need to manage yourself really, really well. And obviously you managed yourself the first two days. And then obviously over the weekend, his look was in. I mean, he chipped in, he did this, he did that, he did this. You know, so your look sometimes does come midway through a tournament. Yeah, for sure. Um, would you say that your role out there, obviously you're a, you're a coach to these guys and girls. What is What would you see your role mainly as? Obviously you're going to work at their technique, but what other areas of their game do you work at? Uh, well, I, I, I think you've got to just manage their, manage their ego, which is what you've talked about recently. And obviously see that they're in form or they're not in form, why they're not in form. Then you look at it a little bit more in depth and you see the stats and you look at the stats and you say, right, this is the situation. You're not driving it well enough. Your short times are not well enough. You, you've got to dissect it a little bit and then go back to the drawing board a little bit and work at it from there. But most of the time, I'm there as a comfort blanket now. Because hopefully, as a coach, what you should be able to do is make yourself obsolete. Yeah, That's what I'm trying to do. I'm make, trying to make the players self-reliant, not relying on me and obsolete. So I, I feel as though I've given them enough information that if I disappeared tomorrow, they would still be great players. And they would they should be because they'd, they'd learnt everything off you that you really want to give them. And sometimes you try and give them too much. And that's really a difficult one because you can see that they're really, really good and you want to push them to the next level. But you you almost have to be very careful not to give too much. And that's an art in itself. And you've got you've got to have spent a few years out there to understand when to give and when to take away. Yeah. Uh, that's the difficult part, really. And and technique, you, you use your basics, you know, if the posture's poor or whatever it is, the movement poor. But you're really, you're really looking, with me, I'm always looking at the delivery position. Mm-hmm. I'm looking and saying, well, you can't hit your shot from there. 
It's not moved into the correct position. It's not. I'm not changing the swing and moving them into a position that they can actually get to the position they want to hit the shots. And I always said to the players, look, if you can hit the nine shots, you don't need me. Yeah, yeah. So if you can hit those nine shots, you really don't need me. The three yeah. and three draws. Yeah. The high, the high, the mid, and the low, and, and fade, straight, draw. And you can do that. You don't need me. But sometimes it might be a lot easier to hit the draw shots. And then you could go out and say, well, I need to hit more draws today than in a fade. But if you're trying to hit a proper fade from the wrong delivery, then you're going to get yourself into trouble because the only really bad shot in golf is a double cross. You can cope with a push. You can cope with a pull. You know, but you, at the double cross, you can't cope with at all. So you've got to make sure that they're not in a position to double cross it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I suppose that it, it, obviously your job is, and you've obviously been a master of this, is reading the player. So number one, as you say, saying the right thing at the right time, but knowing how to approach maybe Darren, different to Thomas, different to Henrik. So the, the, the tone you have to do, sometimes you may have to beat up on them a little bit, or sometimes you might have to be a bit softer depending on the player. I'm sure that's the case, isn't it? Yeah, I've never been softer on anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's, there's just different levels of hardness then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, to be fair, uh, four or five of the majors that the players have won, I've had to give them a real rollicking before, in the weeks before that happened. Certainly in Stenson's case, yeah. Brooks, Brooks's case when he won Erin Hills, Darren's case when he won... Um, at St George's and um, GMAC when he won in the US Open so I've, I've had to be fairly hard on them and the one with Henrik was um, particularly hard because I've had Henrik since 2001 so nearly 20 years my wife calls him my third son so <laughs> and uh, he, it was a US Open that uh, Dustin Johnson had won and he was Playing well, first round, shot 69, right in contention. Second round, he didn't play very well and there was a rain delay and he wasn't very happy with his game. So he didn't turn up for the to play the last three holes of his second round. And I was, to be fair, disgusted. And then the next week we were at, in Germany, the BMW tournament in Stuttgart, Cologne. And I said, before we start, Henrik, I need to you know, talk to you, him and Lordy, and grab Lordy and said, uh, you know, I don't think you're being fair with me particularly because I'm putting all this effort in and then I'll just see you walk off the course and not put the same amount of effort in. And I said, I think I want success for you more than you want it for yourself. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, exactly what I'm saying. I said, I see me putting all the effort in and you just saying, oh, I can't be bothered, can't be bothered. Well, you've got to be bothered. For you to be a great player, you've got to be bothered all the time. It's got to, it's got to hurt you to do what you did there because it hurt me. And I, and then you know it progressed from there, and it, it really got in depth. And of course, what happened? He won that week in BMW. He won the BMW, and three weeks later, he won the Open at True. Wow. Yeah. And the same with Brooks at Erin Hills. Uh, I'd watched Brooks play the week before in St Jude Classic in Memphis, and he was. His body language was appalling. His attitude was appalling. Poor me, poor me, poor me. So I'd sat down with him. I said, I need to speak to you first. And I can remember doing it on the practice ground, the short game area. And they were sat down on the ground, Ricky Elliott and Brooks. And I was stood up. 
and I was giving him the finger. And Graham McDowell was driving past in the car, in the courtesy car up the top, and he was shouting, oh, Kellen's giving them a bollock in there. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, with the attitude you've got, no chance. And the same with Darren at um, St George's. That was a classic, that. You know, I had to talk him down off the shelf, Darren. But I'd done that many times, so that was a fairly easy one, really. Good. I love it. I love it. And you, obviously, you've, you've said already about things like, obviously, getting stage fright is, is a... It kind of separates the best from the rest. Is there anything else in there that, that really separates a top 10 player, a consistent top 10 player, like maybe like a Henrik that separates him from the rest? Henrik's ball striking was always particularly good. I mean, he, when he won the FedEx, he was miles better than anybody else ball striking from, you know, Tita Green. He won it basically on his ball striking. Mm-hmm. He was virtually level. Uh, strokes game putting so he won it all on his ball striking uh, and he'd won the the same year he won the race to Dubai and if you watch the ball striking there 69 greens out of 72 um, I mean and just decimated the field and so, so you know he'd got to that that level and, and they still hadn't won a major and then obviously uh, three years later but again like I said with the right attitude it matters, and sometimes just the kick up the backside that they need sometimes to say, "This is the reason you're not doing what you want to be doing." I said, and on the golf course, you can't afford to let your temperament spoil your game or your attitude, and temperament, attitude, whatever you want to. Say. And that's the only that's the only real difference I see in all the top players. It's the attitude, the belief. Attitude is belief as well. They believe that they are the best when they're playing well. Yeah, I'm the best when I'm playing well, but I'm not that great. Well, nobody's that great when they're playing badly, but they actually knuckle down and do the best they can. And there's Tiger at his best. If he shot 74, that would be the lowest score he could have possibly shot. He wouldn't give a shot away. Langer's exactly that. I mean, I played a lot of golf with Langer. Langer never gave a shot away. He was the meanest man with shots on the golf course. He was burning. And that's why he's still doing so well over the years. And then you look at you know somebody like I studied the game a lot, and I watched Sam Snead, and you, you you look at Sam Snead's swing, and you know why he was still winning when he was in his sixties. I played with Sam Snead when he was sixty-eight in a tournament. He shot two sixty-nines, uh, and we talked a lot about the golf swing then. And he was he was absolutely unbelievable at sixty-eight year old, and and could have won the tournament then. So um, if you've got Great technique and great physiology. But a lot of players are now getting injuries. I mean, Gary's injured now. Gary Woodland just injured himself again. Brooks has been injured. So the power game is going to be difficult on the body. It really is. Longevity, the power game doesn't seem to have longevity that, you know, the great game of Sneed or people like that are going to have. So it's going to be difficult. Yeah, it's definitely a difference. This is something that you talk a lot about, Pete, in terms of how important the, the body is. And um, I know you're working on something. You've been working on something for the last 13 years, you said earlier. And, and when you describe the body and the golf swing, you often sort of relate to, you know, a car, you know, with the engine and the transmission and, and the, 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 the steering. Can you just explain that and elaborate that for the listeners to your sort of concept behind that? Well, first of all, before that, you know, I used to say, right, Think about, everybody thinks they actually practice hard. And I used to 
a thousand balls a day if I could. And I used to do that at ranges. And I thought that, would, that was really hard work on the golf swing. People would say that, of course, it's hard work. It's hard on your body. But if you're making the wrong movements all the time, it's even harder. And I know I slipped a disc when I was 22, out of the game for two years. Couldn't play for two years, which was two you know, really important years. And that's when I had to start thinking about a different way of doing it. So now when people talk to me, I said, well, I'd do it differently now. I'd do it totally differently. I wouldn't bash balls as hard as I did and injure myself as much. Repetitive strain injury in the wrist, in the elbow, you know, in the shoulder, in the neck, you know, which a lot of players are getting these days through basically hitting too many balls. I said, think about it logically before we go into that, you know, the physiology of it is that every shot golf swing takes one and a half seconds from start to finish. And for for your listeners, it's really important this. So in a full round of golf, a decent player will hit, what, 40 full shots maximum? Mm -hmm. 40 multiplied by one and a half seconds, 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. You've done one minute's physical movement in a round of golf. Now, I don't talk about chips and putts. I mean, the actual physical movement to swing in a golf club has taken you one minute, and it's probably taken you four, four and a half, five hours to do it. But you've actually only done one minute's work on your golf swing. You've (laughs) thought about it a lot. And then they ask players, well, how many really good shots did you hit? And they'll say, oh, I hit five or six really good shots. I said, well, that's 10 seconds good work and 50 seconds rubbish. So you've got worse. You haven't got better in that. So then I said, well, let's say you went and hit 400 balls after the round, which would take you another four or five hours. 400 multiplied by one and a half seconds. 600 seconds, that's 10 minutes. So then you've done 10 minutes physical work in your golf swing. You've thought about it a lot again and where, where the club is and all that. But the actual physical element of the golf hitting those balls is 10 minutes. And I always say, how many good shots, how many bad shots? So they say, well, half were good, half bad. I say, well, it's five minutes good work and five minutes not so good. Which part does the brain know is the correct one? If you're confusing it like that, it doesn't. It's sometimes it's giving you the wrong and then it gives you the right. And that's why sometimes in a game of golf, Tony says, well, I'm going along really well, and then all of a sudden I hit one off the planet. Well, that's the brain in the wrong side. It didn't, it didn't actually keep fixing the right side. So, you know, you, you've got to train the brain. So sometimes just hitting golf balls and reacting to where it's gone is the wrong way of doing it because you're confusing your brain. So if, if you, in a full day you've actually done well, you've been out there 10 hours, five hours on the re- on the course and five hours on the range. Let's say you've done 11 minutes physical work mm-hmm. and most of that is non-productive, most of it. All right, so I would say, right, think about it logically, what you were trying to do with your golf swing. You were trying to make a particular movement correct to, to move the implement in the correct way to deliver the blow to the ball. Right, how do you know you were making the right movement? And do you know what is the right movement? <laughs> more to the point. So I'd say, if I had my time to come up, I'd be doing much more body, a bit like martial arts, body movement, body movement, because I should be able to rely on my engine to do the same thing every time. But if it's doing different things all the time, I'm then relying on the manipulation in the hands. And that's what 90% of, 95% of even top players are still reliant on hand-eye manipulation and not particularly good mechanics. 
So I would start teaching just meta mechanics of, of the body to make sure that players understood what they've got to do with the body. Because first of all, we come to golf mainly through having played a moving ball game. Yeah. Most of us will have played a moving ball going or thrown a ball or kicked a ball or whatever. So the move, ball's moving. So it's reactionary. And of course, then they pick up a golf club and they're trying to hit the ball. They pick the club and trying to hit at the ball all the time because that's how they've learned, you know, ball games. It's always reactionary. So they never move the implement correctly. And so as soon as they get into bad habits, it's then down to you, me, and Pierce to try and sort them out, which is difficult because it's already inherent in their, you know, movement, really, the wrong movements, isn't there? So if we teach the correct movement and everybody says, oh, well, I'm so-and-so, I'm 70-year-old, can't do that. Well, I'm 70 and I can still do it. So... That's what I'm saying. I would actually make sure that they understood what they got. And it would prevent injury. Because my philosophy is always, right, a spiral movement. I've said it for 30 years, the spiral movement in the body. And the spiral movement is in nature. Trees grow spiral. Plants grow spiral. The fetus grows as a spiral in, in the womb. Everything you look at is, is spiral. And you won't get injured if you spiral it. If you trap it, you know, trap your back, you won't. If you spiral up, spiral down, the pressure's going in the right place and it rotates correctly. So understanding how you actually move the body correctly in a spiral, you'll not get injured. And I see far too many people like I did injuring the back and, and you know, all of a sudden they've got a slip disc or whatever it is. And so it's for us as coaches to prevent your clients, you know, getting injured. So well, that's really, really important. So one thing on that then, Pete. So let's say somebody's um, been for a golf lesson, one of the listeners, and they know that they, for instance, they've got um, a poor movement of the hips in the backswing and they're struggling to, to maybe correctly load into the backswing with their hips. They'd be much better off being maybe spending more time away from the range, just working at a movement pattern and maybe some mobility in that. If there's a, if there's a, so if they, they would improve much quicker if they did that. Yeah. Because... If you look at all the Korean girls now, how good they are in, on the on the ladies' tour in America, the, the top of the leaderboard all the time, the Koreans, they learn the movement. They hit into a net that's 50 yards or 90 yards away. Yeah. So they're not actually seeing what's happening to the ball. They're just saying, right, if I make this movement correct, the strike will be perfectly correct, and then it will actually go where I want it. So there's no outcome. So when they get on the golf course, all they're doing is making the movement. Yeah. Not thinking of the outcome, whereas most players, unfortunately, their brain is always thinking outcome. Yeah. Outcome instead of movement. If I get the movement right, the outcome's correct. But most people stand on the first tee and they're thinking about the outcome before they hit it. Oh, well, what if it goes What if it goes in the tree's left or the tree's right or that bunker? No, that's, that's in the future. Nothing you can do about that. Make the present correct and the future will take care of itself. And that's how they all learn. The Korean girls all learn that. So it's a particular movement. That's why they move so well. That's why they swing the club so well. They're focusing on the movement. Hi, everyone. Andy here. Just letting you know about something that we've created just for you. MeAndMyGolf.com is our membership platform that we believe is the best resource out there to improve your golf. And one of the questions that we get asked all the time is what's the difference between YouTube and the website? And the main difference being is that sometimes people can get lost 
in content on YouTube and not really having a clear structure or plan of where to go. So we wanted to create something that was, was really going to help golfers. We've got over a thousand uh, coaching videos on there, but our main thing or main feature on there are the coaching plans. And we've seen some amazing results from these plans. And these are basically carefully designed plans on all areas of the game so you don't have to think or worry about what to do. We tell you exactly what to practice each week and whether you're looking to break a certain score, fix a slice, improve your putting or short game, we have a plan that will suit you. We're even staggered at some of the results that golfers are getting from these as well and we even have a private Facebook group where all of our members go and share experiences and support each other. Real nice place, positive place to be. And we'd love to see you over there and have the chance to help you with your game so make sure you head over to meandmygolf.com and check out your free trial with no obligations to join check it out and see if you can find a plan and become a part of this amazing community it's interesting because when we sort of first went into lockdown and everyone was buying nets for their garden um we were doing a few sort of bits on it and sort of content and it was like this is a great opportunity because golfers now can actually work at their movement without having to react to what's going on with the ball you know, so that, you know, they're going to be in a net and they, let's say they want to work at their backswing. They're doing it without going, well, the ball finished right there. Now I've got to make this compensatory move. So I know when I was a junior growing up, I used to do a lot of practice in a net and it was very much focused on just what I needed to do to improve. But I was never then reacting to where the ball's going really. So I think there's a lot of benefit in that as well. Uh, I, would, I would definitely see a lot more benefit of that than reacting because everybody reacts to where the ball's gone and then they self-correct, unfortunately. So they never really get the movement down pat. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I said, for me, uh, I would ask, ask them, say, can you, can you spare 15 minutes a day? I don't want you to, you know, think that you've got to go to the gym for two hours to get better. Spare 15 minutes a day, get this movement pretty good. And we, we do enough little exercises that they can, they can actually change the exercise and it still gives them the same pattern. So uh, in the golf swing, we live in a three-dimensional world, so everything we do is three-dimension. So what are the three dimensions in the golf swing? Very simply, put them in its most simplest form, uh, up and down, lateral and rotation. Right, one of them has got to be in charge. One has to be in charge. Which one is it? Come on, Andy. What, the up, up down, or lateral? It's got to be the up and down, so it happens before the lateral. If you get the up and down right, you get the lateral and rotation as a consequence. So if you look at, when you're looking at, you know, uh, one, of, one of these aiming sticks, I don't know whether you can see it, the aiming sticks here. Yeah. And when I press down, I get the lateral and then it can't move any further. So it gets, it gets the rotation. So if I get the up and down correct, I get the lateral through the muscle structure, pushing the bones into a lateral position and then they can't move any further. So the muscles pull them around. So if you get the up and down correct, the lateral and rotation. So most players don't get the up and down because they've been taught to turn and turn, unfortunately. And a turn and turn is correct if you're spiraling the turn and turn because that's that's what coils. So the simplest way of describing that to somebody is say, right, hold the bottom of the spring, twist the top. What happens to the coils? They all go around, right? You've coiled it. Hold the bottom, twist the top. That's the old X factor. Hold the bottom, twist the top. And then you look at Rory, who holds the bottom, twists the top. But just before he's finished twisting the top, he twists the bottom in the other way, so he gets a double the coil. So that's why he's five foot eight and he hits it 320 yards, because he doubles the coil. And it's as simple as that. But a turn and a turn doesn't coil it. 
and falsely. That's that's one of the biggest problems. So when I say about you know the golf swing being like a car, I always say, well, what do you want an engine in a car to do? Well, I want it to never break down. That's for a start. <laughs> I want it to have plenty of power when I need it, uh, and so I really want the perfect engine. All right, let's have the perfect engine. Let's have the perfect steering attached to two or four wheels. Let's have the best driver and the best fuel. Are we going to win every? Like, a bit like Lewis Hamilton, are we going to win every race? Well, not if the transmission or the linkage between the engine and the steering is no good. So that's great if the transmission is working properly. So we get the transmission fixed and, yeah, we win every race. So we've got five perfect component parts there. In the golf swing, your body's the engine, if you like. I want that to do the same thing every time. That's why I said if we spent 15 minutes a day getting the engine working better, it would be much easier to steer. Yeah. but only if we get the linkage. So in, in the golf swing, your body's the engine, your arm, hand and club are the steering. Your brain is the fuel and the driver. Hopefully they're all right. They're not, <laughs> they're not thinking in the wrong way. And then from there, you know, we can get the consistency of the movement if we link it all together. So, or the transmission. And what transfers the energy from the body to the steering, the arm and club movement, is the shoulder movement. But it's muscle structure within that. Understanding how there's muscles within the shoulder, within the bicep, within the, in the forearm, within the wrist, how they all work to actually achieve what we want to achieve on top of a real stable engine body movement. And that's why I said uh, me and Duffy are you know, going to let the cat out of the bag with the physiology shortly because we believe that if you get that right, I'm going to put you and Piers out of a job because they're not going to need any coaches. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, so, but it really is important that you get that because you're preventing injury as well, which is so important. But transferring the energy. And I asked players, I said, good players, I said, right, can you load the shoulders for your fade and your draw properly? Can you load the shoulder muscles for a fade and draw? What do you mean? I said, well, therefore, you, do, you are going to get a double cross if you don't understand how that structure is worked because you've got to transfer that energy that's created in your body through to your direction, which is your arm and the club movement. And if you don't get the shoulder, because we were taught turn and turn. Well, if your lead arm and your lead shoulder is miles out of the way, how do you get your arm down? Mm. Well, with a bit of difficulty if you move too quickly, that's for sure. Mm. And that's why everybody says, oh, I'm trapped behind it. I'm trapped behind it. Well, of course you're going to be, you know, you're working. And everybody then says, oh, slow your body down. I said, well, do you want a slow, bad swing now? You don't <laughs> slow, bad swing. You want, you want a quick swing that's right. You don't want a slow <laughs> swing that's bad. So you don't want to be short and wild. You'd like to be long and occasionally at the one that goes on the green. But that's, that's my, you know, premise of what I've always done. I, I try and spiral the body so that I can load the shoulders, load the arms into relative, always relative to the shot you intend to play. Yeah. So there's no real guesswork. And then I'm not, I'm not in the future. I'm not thinking of the outcome. I'm thinking of the process. And like you lad said, what do you actually talk about the players? The process, the outcome takes care of itself. Like a three foot putt. I can't make that ball go in the hole, but I can actually make the outcome better by making a good stroke. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I said myself and Kevin have been working for 13 years on this, you know, the physiology. And Ramsey McMaster was, you know, 
he was the he was the driver behind me uh, originally. We had uh, a process where we went to Belgium, and they wanted to you know get they wanted to get players on the tour from their top sports school, and they said, "Can you help us with that?" And myself and Ramsey and Ryan Lumsden went to Belgium. We created. Um, a little bit of an academy where we used to go four or five times a year to the top sports school. We had six or seven kids that were really, really good, good, but not brilliant. We developed them, Thomas Peters being one and Thomas Dietrich being the other. And we developed them from being 12 years old. So we helped them to create. And then it was virtually 10 years before they got on tour. So they, they developed, Belgium golf developed from very very small beginnings they developed two great players that won the world cup yeah of course yeah, yeah. thomas street is certainly one to watch he's come on the scene and he's um he's, he's producing some great results and i'm sure he's thomas thomas is my model thomas is the model i would he thomas does all the drills that i would ask him to do yeah uh he's i asked you stenson i said if you'd have done 50 percent of what i've asked you to do Think of how good you'd have been. You've done about 20%, 25% of what I've asked you to do, and you've become this good. Think how good you'd have been if you'd done 50%. And Thomas Peters does probably 75%. But again, yeah. his temperament gets the better of him. So yeah. if I could just break that, then you know we've got we've got a great player on our hands. Yeah, and he had a close win, Detry, didn't he? At uh, the Forest of Arden, he finished second, I think, recently. And uh... Yeah, Detry's a good, nice, solid player. Really is. Good, yeah. solid, great swing. The lads in Belgium have taken over and done a really good job with him. Um, three or four of the coaches there really work hard with him. I still do Thomas Peters. Uh, and I, I'm disappointed that I haven't actually pushed him. Although he got to 23rd in the world for a while, um, I, I really need him to push on now because he is that good. You've seen glimpses, haven't you? I mean, Ryder Cup, obviously, when he played with Rory, was it? I think, and yeah, it was phenomenal. Then he was—he looked unbeatable, and you're almost thinking then. I think you probably because that would have been what four years ago, three years ago. Yeah, sixteen. Yeah. yeah. So you think, well, wow, this guy is going to be, but he's still a player at time, obviously. But yeah, maybe like you say, a few things he's still got to figure out. I, th I think he'll next year. I think we're going to have a great year with Thomas, definitely. Uh, but with, with with golf, I mean, it's having a bit of a resurgence with this lockdown and everything. Our range has never been busier. Yeah. Said, we, we look unluckily, we got all our balls stolen. They made an unbelievable effort. They cut into a three-metre-high palisade fencing, then a chain-link fencing, and then the fencing on the inside, and then they hand-picked the balls up and then disappeared. Amazing, you, never, you never know, Pete. They might be. They might be just be playing bad. They might just need more golf balls, so they'll be looking less soon. <laughs> you'll be getting they, your they, out there. They'd have to have a big pocket to fill that twenty thousand balls up. That's oh, for sure. Oh, but we get a lot of really good youngsters here now. And Nick Hilby, who does all our junior coaching, he uh, has twelve tournaments here for kids from all ages, from six, and makes it enjoyable and then we have four majors for the good four majors for the good playing at the better courses Lindrick and um, Rotherham and places like that we, we've got a really good uh, academy 
tournament schedule now and they're, they're playing on the 30th. They're still allowed to play, so they're playing on the 30th this month. That's our final major. And then we have, obviously, prize giving, but possibly won't, not, won't be able to have that. It'll have to be remote prize giving again by Zoom or something like that. And that's a peak camp golf academies, isn't it? Obviously, that's what it's like. Yeah, it's it's my academy in uh, in Rotherham here, and then obviously I've got three academies in Dubai as well: the Emirates, Jumeirah, and uh, the Creek. So the lads there are pretty good. Um, the two Irish lads that have been with me an awful long time, Steve Dean and Alistair Brown, they run the academies really, really well. Uh, and the, and all the coaches are really good lads. So they've had a really uh, di- difficult, hard season because yeah. there's been nothing else for the people in Dubai to do. So their courses have been absolutely full. They've had record coaching uh, revenue in really? Dubai, which is interesting. Yeah, it's We could actually just to move towards some. Some I've got a couple of questions for you on on some on amateurs and. You obviously see a lot when there's the programs run at these tournaments. You know, you'll see people on the lesson tier as well, I'm sure. But what are the what are the big things that you see that they're doing wrong, and how are they? And what are the big errors that they're making in try to actually fix themselves? Well, as I as I've just said earlier, I, I still think that the biggest problem is the the hitting at the ball. Yeah, the ball's there, it's stationary. It's not going to move. Mm-hmm. They don't move the implement that well, so they hit at it with the hands and the implement. So the movement doesn't match what they're trying to do. So they, they get a mismatch. And that's why I said, if you can get matching movements, and it doesn't need to be a full backswing or you know a full follow-through, it can be a very simple movement that matches and then delivers the blow to the ball correctly. But I don't see them move the club around themselves well enough. A lot of them move it up and down, and they can't then match what the body's actually trying to do. They have to get the body out of the way to get their arms in position. So I don't see that nice body move, simple body movement that allows the arms to move around the body. A bit like visualizing yourself on an explanaire movement, you know, on the 3D movement on the on the deep plate. Keeping it as simple as that. Uh, and I don't see that. I see a lot of pickup. And then obviously then they're trying to because they've had lessons, they're trying to get it on the inside if they picked it up, or they're trying to get it on the outside. So they're all, always trying to move it through manipulation in the hands and not really a sensible movement. So I would teach them with, again, like one of those aiming sticks with the lead arm, because it's light enough to swing, lead arm, and just getting what I say to kids. Right, imagine you've got this um, aiming stick and you are gripping it and you're drawing a circle around yourself at an angle so the tip of the pencil is drawing the circle around and then make sure the tip of the pencil is coming back down and around so that would work for all amateurs you're moving it around and up down and around moving it down and, and let the ball get in the way one of the best one of the best lessons i ever gave was to a woman in belgium funny enough she was struggling. She was a good tennis player, good sportswoman, but she couldn't grasp golf at all. And her husband played a lot of golf around the world. He was a very successful businessman. And she said, all I want to do is go away and play golf with my husband on these really nice courses, but I can't really, I can't even hit the ball. So 
I watched her a few and I suddenly realised she was much more of a field player because she was trying to put the club in a certain position. So eventually I did what I did with a lot of players. I put a putter, her putter in her hand and said, right, the flat part of the putter, the top part of the putter, you swing it and you put the flat part of the putter into that position at nine o'clock. It goes up, it comes back the flat part, it comes through. And all of a sudden she could feel where the club needed to be. Mm-hmm. And she moved it around her body, lovely. And then we started teeing the ball up and ball gets in the way, ball gets in the way. All of a sudden she played. And I said, well, you could play on, you know, off a tee with your husband all the time because you're not playing competitively. She says, well, you know, obviously I'd like to do that. So I put put her grips on all the clubs. And but she became a really, really good player with the ball down as well as because the movement became so ingrained. And then obviously she was able to use normal grips and play competitive golf. But without that, she'd have given the game up. Wow. So again, it's understanding whether they are field players or they really want to actually understand the pure mechanics of the swing. And that's as coaches, that's what we really need to understand with somebody that are, are they field players? You know, are they visual players? And I know for a fact that Gary Woodland, for instance, is a visual player. He makes me demonstrate all the time because he'll learn a lot more from my demonstration than he will from me telling him how to do it. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Andy, we have got a couple more questions there, Andy. Do you want, do you want to go for a couple of those coaching ones there? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, I know he's answered a couple of already. What, what, what makes a good coach, in your opinion, then? What would you say makes a good coach, coach Pete? I'll tell you exactly what makes a good coach. He cares about what he's doing with the pupil. And that's why I always said I was, because it really, every poor shot they hit, I lived it, I relived it with all, especially with the top players, especially with somebody like Stenson. You know, if he's having a bad round, I feel it as much as anybody. Yeah. Because I feel that's, that's partly mine as well, that I've, you know, developed his golf swinging so much that he shouldn't do that. <laughs> so I, I almost take the responsibility. But as a good coach, you've got to care and you've got to understand what limitations your pupil can do. Don't try and impart all your information. They've come to you because they know you're a good coach. Don't try and prove that you're a good coach. Just do your job as well as you can. Make them that little bit better and get them to go away happy. That's why I, I got a reputation as the best quick fix-it coach in my area when I was at Lindry, and that's why people used to come to me. They, they knew I could fix them in half an hour, stop them snap-hooking it or slicing it. I could do that by just creating a movement that dictated that they weren't going to do that, a very simple process of elimination of how you're going to do that. But you learn that as a coach. You don't learn it straight away. Yeah. You learn that over a period of time. I know for a fact that I I didn't like coaching to start with because I thought, well, I'm pretty frightened of you know making somebody worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I think young coaches, you just talk to them and say, well, you know, I don't really know whether I can help this. I said, of course you can. Believe in yourself. You can do, and and you have to develop your your own coaching around that. And and they've come to you because they believe in you. So you don't have to. Try and promote yourself too much, but give them give them what they want. And as I said, if they come if they come and they want a lesson with the driver, a lot of the times 
players say, oh, I'll get your wedgie out. And the guy thinks, actually, I've come for a lesson with a driver. He's telling me to get my wedgie out. <laughs> and that's like somebody going into a pub and saying, I want a pint of beer. And somebody saying, well, a, a pint of orange juice will be a lot better for you. I've come for a pint of beer. <laughs> I've not come for a pint of orange juice. So give them what they actually want. And even if it takes a while with the driver, let them hit a few, get into it, and then talk them round and make it appear as though it's their decision to go back to hitting a shorter shot. Yeah. And then you've got the confidence of, you know, you pupil all the time. And I think that's really, really important. But it's it really because you care. Yeah. And, and sometimes I have sleepless nights, you know, thinking about the players that I've coached. And I think, mm, have I quite done the right thing there? Have I given them too much information about put information overload and them? And I've done it before, but don't get me wrong, I've, I've given far too much information too early in my coaching, almost to try and prove how, how much knowledge I've got. They're not yeah. comfy in knowledge, they're comfy in help. Do you, would you say that you, you've got better better now over the years of just saying less? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you, you watch the player, you don't jump in straight away, you watch the movement, you see the movement, you see where the improvement can come, and then you just make a one one simple change and it does make a massive difference and then they're not you know information overloaded yeah well i want your posture to do this i want you to do that i want you to swing it i want you to get it up there more upright less you know more from the inside you do that as a consequence of your thought process when you're watching a player how you're going to do that you don't have to tell them how you're going to do it you do it yeah so we have actually got some uh listener, watcher, question, depending on this. We'll go into those in a sec. We have actually got one selfish question on, on ourselves. Um, and it would be based on, we've got a player that we coach who's a, who's a good player. He went actually on European tour a couple of weeks ago, Aaron Rye. Uh, we've worked with Aaron since he was 11 years of age, known him for even longer. But what would you, what advice would you give us to, to I suppose, get the best out of Aaron, I suppose? It's a very selfish question. <laughs> I, I think he's. I think he's a really, really good player. Uh, very simple, repetitive. Um, I think ex experience. All you need to do is make sure that he's getting it, and he is. He's he's managed every stage at the moment. So he obviously doesn't get stage fright. He wouldn't have won in Scotland if he got stage fright because hitting it in the bunker in the playoff, and then Tommy laying up instead of hitting driver and probably going you know, for the wedge for the three. Yeah. Uh, and, and he didn't think he was going to do anything other than knock it out of the bunker and make four, and hopefully that Tommy wouldn't make three. Yeah. Uh, and he played a perfect a perfect hole, really, relative to the poor shot that he hit in the bunker. It might not have been a poor shot. It might have been a good shot that just ran out too much. Yeah. But every, every time I see him, I'll tell you a little story about Aaron. It's very funny, actually. We like these. We like these. We've heard a few, so this is going to be a good one. <laughs> well, I don't know whether you've heard this one, but we're on the range at uh, Jumeirah in Dubai a couple of years ago, and I'm with Poulter. <laughs> We've right. had Poulter on the podcast. I think you might have told us this one, but I'd like to hear your version. I know, yeah. <laughs> Keep going. I'm with, I'm with Poulter, and Aaron's down the range hitting balls. And there's me, Polt, and Terry's caddy stood there. And Polt says, I didn't think there was a pro-am on today. I didn't think there was a pro-am today. Is that, was, was that there? 
was a mama to them. I said, that's Aaron Rice, good player. He's, he's worked really hard and he's got here on his own merit this year. <sighs> if I can't beat him this, if I can't beat him this week, I'm giving the game up. That's exactly what he said. <laughs> so <laughs> after three rounds, Aaron's about five shots in front of Polt. <laughs> <laughs> and we reminded, me and Terry reminded him, Polt said, you know, you've got to give up the game if you don't beat Aaron, you're five behind, <laughs> you're five behind him today. Uh, oh, yeah. And so we pulled his leg and, of course, Aaron beat him. And after he's come in, Polt, we said, well, well done, Polt. That's your career over. You're giving the game up. <laughs> oh, dear. I mean, and we've crucified him about that over the years, Polt. And then, of course, Aaron went and won, won uh, Hong Kong not long after. And then we all text Bolt <laughs> and, and pull his leg again. Oh, dear. But Terry's never let it go. Terry Mundy's yeah. never let that one go. Well, and then obviously in Scotland as well. But he's, he's a really good player, does everything well. He works hard. I mean, he's the, probably as, as hard a worker out there as there is, Aaron. Uh, Single-minded. He's doing all the right things. So I wouldn't try and force the issue. Mm. I'd just try and keep doing what you're doing. If you want, try and take a few more stats to see where his strengths and his weaknesses are and, and just work on those. And, and don't overload him with too much information because he's obviously, he works it out. And he's the sort of player that I see that can take a five iron out and hit it 150 yards. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot, oh, five iron, that goes 200 yards. No, no, it can go 150 as well, you know, mm-hmm. in a strong win. And I think that's why he did so well in Scotland. You know, it's he's managing his game is the key to being able to do that. And I think he's done that really, really well. And he'll learn from playing all the courses more consistently. But you would expect, unfortunately, his future has got to be US Tour. Yeah. Has to be. And if he wants to play with all the best players. But he's doing everything right at the moment. And he's really, I don't know what his gym works like, but he obviously will work at that as well. He's very focused, single-minded. Um, he probably needs a new set of pine covers if you get them. To- <laughs> he's getting some. He's getting some soon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's amazing the amount of stick he gets for that. But you know what? It's part of his build-up, and he, he just oh wants- yeah, absolutely. He's, he's, he's impervious to that for sure. It's but a- you're doing you're doing most things right, so you know, give yourself a pat on the back for that. He's, he's done really well the last. Well, I think the same as you said, he is like a, I don't know, a cousin, a son to us as well. He is, you know, you feel part of the family and he's just such, he's the nicest lad you'll ever meet. Family are amazing. And, you know, because he puts in the hard work and, you know, you always feel that you have to back him up with that as well and do the same amount yourself. And it's, it's just a pleasure working with him. And yeah, we'll see how he goes, obviously, but he's already, you know, he's already a success for sure. The, the, the unfortunate thing, it isn't just hard work at this game. Otherwise, there'd be hundreds and hundreds of really good players. I mean, yeah. they do work hard, these kids, but they just can't make through. A lot of them, it's because they can't play any competitive golf anywhere at this, this time of year. You know, certainly in the last 18 months, they've really struggled to move up to another level. Uh, luckily, the lads that are up there have been able to play some tournaments. But for the others that are on the fringe, it's been a very, very difficult in a few few months for them. And I don't know where it's going to go in the next year either. It might be, it might be another away, a year away from them being able to go to tour school or being able to play on the challenge tour. Yeah. Difficult one for the kids. 
for sure, for sure. And hopefully we can get around to it. So um, we've got some really good questions here, actually. I'm going to go through a few of these. Um, so David Marchant, 29, best degree wedge for chipping around the green? A 50 degree. 58. With a good, with a good crown on the, the 50 degree. If you're chipping around the green, 50 degree with a good crown on the sole so it doesn't dig okay. if you're chipping. Uh, I'd still, I still use an old pitching wedge, which is 48 degrees. It's an old DCIB, but uh, it's got a round sole. Oh, yeah, yeah, really well with that. Uh, but I'm not allowed to say that because I should say it's a Callaway DCIB. <laughs> <laughs> Callaway DCI. <laughs> any, 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 any Roger Cleveland wedge. Any Roger Cleveland. Wedge. <laughs> I don't remember those. <laughs> Brilliant. How about if there was a bit more loft required? If they need a bit more loft. Uh, I'd still prefer to open it and just really ease the club under the ball a little bit, full face under the ball. So a uh, chipping technique. And that's why I said this little gadget I've got, training aid, is, will help massively with people with chipping, chipping problems and loft problems on whether to decide what loft to play. But most players, unfortunately, open the club face and then drag the handle. So that's the problem in itself. Whereas if you open a club face, you've got to deliver the, the full full open club face under the ball to get the proper loft. Yeah. And if you're dragging the handle, you'll never do that. So you get an inconsistency in flight. It's uh, I, I, I hate lob wedges, particularly, because you get a popper occasionally with them. With a 56 degree, you very rarely get a popper. So controlling your ball flight is everything. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I'd rather have a 56 degree and open it. Probably. You think it's Seve with his 56, obviously. He obviously figured that out. Well, I watched Seve and I played an awful lot with Seve and I asked him two questions. How do you hit the high soft shot, Seve? And he used to say, well, I hit the high shot, soft shot by hitting the, but the button in my pocket. The butt of the club goes in my pocket. That's my high shot. What about the low shot, Seve? Uh, I put the butt in my pocket low. <laughs> put the butt in my pocket low. That's how I get the low shot. And you watched him do it, and that's exactly what he did. He did, yeah. You know, he, 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 that's all he said. And it was, it was brilliant, really. Very, very simple. But cool. he never dragged the butt. Yeah, no, no. No, you're right. This is, this is an interesting one. I'm interested. So it's a very basic one, but Sammy Sledgehammer, okay? How do I maintain balance when hitting my driver? I'm a single-figure golfer. And he loses balance a lot. What should he be looking well, for? When I always say working on balance is really important, but one of, one of the reasons they lose balance is they spin the feet. They don't put pressure into the ground, and that's why they, they lose the balance. Yeah. So it's all about speed now. And if you spin your feet to get speed, you're going to lose your balance. Like I said, three dimensions, up and down, lateral and rotation. In the up and down, you spiral. Your pressure goes down into your feet. Then you can work the hips really faster and the torso quicker and stretch more. So you'd stretch to your finish rather than just having a speed finish. So your feet move, and it, I'll guarantee his feet spin a lot when he's hitting. You know, so he doesn't keep the ground in the change of direction. Put the pressure down. There's quite a few exercises that we do to actually achieve that with players. And they can create a lawful lot better base and better balance when they do. So just rather, and somebody will tell them to stop swinging as hard. No, swing as hard as you want, as long as you've got the pressure in the ground. Yeah, I like it. I like it. A um, couple more. Wilco Stew, the basics for solid bunker shots. 
So what, what's the what's the go-to things for bunker shots? I don't see players delivering the loft under the ball enough. I see them dragging it, dragging it at all. So with a good a good bunker player, and Danny, Danny was here a couple of days ago, Danny Willett, we've had to reinvent his bunker play because he'd, st- he'd started dragging, he started dragging it. And of course, Foley's a crap bunker, crap bunker coach. So Foley couldn't do it with him. <laughs> hey, what you think, Pete? <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it. And so we we had to get Danny with a square face and play all the shots with a square face. So you have to deliver the square face correctly, and under the ball there has to be the oval divot, even with a square face, if your technique is perfectly correct. Most players will get a long thin divot with drag pull across, and of course can't get the pressure on the sand to get the ball to elevate or to release. It's all about the pressure that you apply to the sand to become a good bunker player. And most players drag across, so the pressure is going away from where we want and pushing the ball to the side. That's why so many players get this horrible left-to-right spinner on there. And I know know for a fact, because I learned from the best, Gary Player particularly, and then Seve afterwards that I spent a lot of time with Player and spent quite a bit of time with Seve. Because Seve used to be one of the players last on the range with me. It was me and Vijay and Seve, and we used to try and out outstay people on the range sometimes. <laughs> Vijay used to win most of the time. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I bet. It's interesting. We actually did um we did a um a video with Rory last year, last November, about a year ago, um, on Dunkers, and he was just phenomenal. But he was saying about how he'd just done a, I think he'd just done a session with you post was it just before the Ryder Cup? And he was as you say, he was sort of wiping across it a little bit and... Yeah, well, look, I mean, I, I helped. I was Irish coach for a while in the uh, when Rory was 13 or 14. And uh, we we used to say to him, well, you can't hit this bunker shot, can you? Because he was only 13 or 14. This high soft one to the back flag. I can. And used to give him the club and say, do it. And he couldn't get it there. But then he used to turn around and say, next time I see you, I'll be able to do that. I'll be able to do that. And he used to... And then the, the Irish used to ask me about, you know, the players in the squad and everything. And so I said, well, obviously Rory's is brilliant. And they said, oh, what about this kid? What about that kid? What about the other kid? And I said, no, the other really good player in your squad is a little fat lad with glasses. <laughs> the little fat lad with glasses. He's your next best player. Shane Lowry. Lowry so, okay, so, so every time Shane wins, I always text him and say, not bad for a little fat lad with glasses. <laughs> Because he found out I'd said it. I'd said it. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, I've got one more here, and I know you're not going to answer this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Alex Buckner Golf, plug bunker spinner. What's the secret? <laughs> well, to be fair, I showed uh, um, Jason Day was walking past when we were in CJ Cup last year. And funny enough, Bryson, um, Brandon Grace asked me to hit the plug spinner. And I told Jason Day I can do this. And he'd never believed me, Jason Day. So I, I said, right, okay, I'll show you just once. And of course, I hit this perfect out of a plug light, perfect spin on the green. And he, even Brandon shouted Jason from a distance, he's hit the bloody spinner out of the plug light. And it's, it's actually an art of how you get the heel to cut the sand to cut the sand properly 
and then you spin the sand as hard as you can against the ball. And that even though there's plenty of sand there, you can you can get the spinner. But you've got to you've got to do it with a proper heel cut and the hands in the right position. That's uh, yeah. But I could show them, but I'd have to kill them if I showed. Yeah. Them. yeah. <laughs> 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 I, I, I gotta tell you just one other story we could talk about this for ages and I really appreciate your time here but obviously you are a fantastic bunker player now Brett Rumford is also pretty tasty when it comes to the short shots around the greens and especially bunkers but you've got that upper hand on him I believe have you? Huh? Have you got the upper hand on him I believe especially from the awkward lies well we had we had uh, we, we had at Hoylake it was at the open and They'd always said, well, you two are really good bunker players. And they said, we'd better find out who's the better bunker player. And, of course, his caddy there, Max, was Max was caddying this, the New Zealander who caddied for, he's caddied for everybody, Max. So Max was there. I said, right, I'll play, I'll play you, but I've got to play out of bad lies. Good lies, probably nobody better than... Because he practices good lies all the time. <laughs> That's what makes him look so good. Practice that good lies. So I said, we've got to do it out of bad lies. So right, okay, we did it, and we had five five shots out of bad lies, and the caddy decided what the bad lies were, and of course, who who won? Of course. And I've never given him chance to get his own. <laughs> yeah. And you probably never will be. Why would you give it a no, chance? No, well, again? definitely will. I got one up on that one. But Thomas <laughs> Peters is Thomas Peters is probably as good as anybody out bunkers. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. You watch him. If you get a chance to watch him, I'm sure you will. But he is brilliant. Awesome. Yeah. I'd be excited to see him. I don't know he's learnt it. I don't know he's learnt it off, but he's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I think Foley, wasn't it? He went to Foley. <laughs> <laughs> He'd have still been in the bunker now if he'd gone to Foley. <laughs> Brilliant. Great. Pete, amazing. Yeah. Thank you for your time, Pete. It's been great. All right, lads. Nice to have you on. I'm sure I'll see you out there somewhere. Yeah, at some at some when, point. When uh Aaron gets and plays Augusta, yeah. he'll probably be there next year, won't he? Top fifty in the world. The by Christmas. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. yeah. There'll probably still be no crowds then next year, unfortunately. Yeah. Especially Quick if it's one. anything to do with Boris. We've got no cards. <laughs> <laughs> Quick one on the Masters then, Pete. Prediction. Do you think it's going to be... Quick one on the Masters. Is it going to be a shock winner or is it going to be someone who's uh, who's won it before? Well, they always ask me who's going to win the Masters and I always say the best chipper is going to win the Masters that week because you, you will not see a poor chipper win Augusta. No. no. That's why Reed, fantastic chipper. Yeah. Everybody's and Bryson might struggle with the chipping. That's about the only thing I would say. But he's actually improving all the time. Yeah. He's going to kill the course with his length, obviously. Yeah, and that's that in itself is going to create a problem. But they could they could solve this in one in, in one go. The RNA and the USGA could solve it in one go, but they won't do. No. They could put the spin back on the ball so that the harder you hit it, the more spin you put on it. Yeah. And if you do that, it leaves them still able to hit it as hard as they want with as much speed as they want. But understand you're going to put more spin on the ball and therefore you're going to lose a little bit of control. Because you want to put a lot of spin on the ball for a short shot, but you don't want to put much spin on for a long shot. So for years they've been taking the spin off these balls, the bits off these balls, to allow kids like Bryson to do what they're doing, four-degree drive, long drive, hit on the up, no spin. 
high launch, no spin. If it's high launch and a lot of spin, you're going to see a few lost balls. Yeah. Yeah. So they could do it if they wanted to, but mm -hmm. it's not that big a deal. Get the spin back on the ball. The harder they hit it, the more spin they put on it. Cure it in one. It is you can manufacture anything. Manufacturers would just have to say, leave leave these golf balls alone for the amateurs because mm. they're self-correcting. So, you know, let them let the amateurs have the ball, but let the pros use the ball that spins as much. But you're not taking their ability to hit it a long way off them. And I always say, you never take the ability of a good putter off it. Yeah. The greens are always there. But uh, over the years, you've taken the ability of a great driver like Woozy, Greg Norman, Nick Price. They were great drivers. They had a massive advantage being great drivers. Mm -hmm. Now, everybody's a great driver. Yeah. Yeah. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So, but they'll not sort it. So. <laughs> they won't listen to an old bloke like me in any case <laughs> maybe they should maybe they should i tell you what this is a, again another very selfish one for most people before you go it would be great to be able to spend some time with you watching you coach if that was something you were ever open what, to watching me bunker shots even, even having a lesson i think it'd be really cool to just to go through that process ourselves so yeah if we can figure yeah. that out at some point it'd be really nice if that was possible yeah all I right mean, that lesson i think Pierce, when covid's too. over You've already yeah. had yours, Pierce. Yeah. So, so where can the guys, anyone listening to this, where can they find out about your academies, Pete, and, and, and sort of find out? Well, they're on, on our website, on, on the website, www.petecowan.com. I mean, there, there's obviously the websites in uh, Dubai as well. Uh, the three the three guys, that they'll get, if they're out in Dubai, they'll get great coaching off the lads in Dubai at the Emirates, at uh, the Creek or Jumeirah. Of course, we'll be at Jumeirah for the these. DP World in December, so you lads might be there. Don't know. Not sure yet. Might maybe. There's potential. Yeah, it'd be a nice. Well, at least you'll be able to get out. Yeah, exactly. Come and have a look at our range. I'll show you how the bunker shots should be. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. Brilliant. All right, Pete. Well, thank you so much for your time. You uh, all enjoy, right, lads. Enjoy getting back away. Hope you replace those golf balls on the range soon. Yeah. And. Uh, <laughs> We'll maybe see you out there soon. If you, if All right. You, if you did take yeah, those golf balls, bring them back. Cheers, <laughs> Cheers, Cheers Pete. Thanks, Cheers, Pete. Cheers. All the best, lads. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Bye. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you found some great value in it. And if you did, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. Also, let us know your feedback by leaving us a rating or review over on iTunes. And remember, if you want to go deeper and really improve your game, head over to meandmygolf.com and start your free trial and check out one of the many plans that are seeing incredible results. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to speaking to you next week.